Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around innovation and purpose in the world. I kind of changed it up. A friend of mine gave me some good feedback about doing something, being a little bit vague, and we want to inspire people and and share inspired stories that are actually making impact. So bear with me as I work through that a little bit, but um, we're here again. I'm still in Accra. It's, um, it's actually getting, I think the season's changing. The raining season is coming. There's a bit of wind. Uh, making it a little bit cooler. So that's kind of nice. And I'm talking to New York today, but my guest has a very interesting global story, which I'm excited to dive into. He is an international human rights lawyer, and he's working at the intersection of human rights and global health. He's the founder of the Open Source Pharma Foundation, which aims to create a new paradigm for drug discovery and generate affordable new cures in areas of great human health need. And he's also the founder of the India Nutrition Initiative, which is developing DFS, which we'll talk a little bit more about. It's a DFS, a salt that is double fortified with iron and iodine to address nutritional causes, or I'm sorry, to address malnutrition caused by iron deficiency. So DFS has reached millions of people already. And so these are kind of the things that inspire me. He's an old friend of mine, inspired me to ask him to join us because he's just really on the cusp of science and innovation. And I'm happy to host Mr. Jay Kumar Menon. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Florence. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, yes, yes. So let's get right to the business of our conversation. So tell us where are you from? And where are you local? And what is your craft? All right. I suppose once you start not with you, but with the ancestry and ancestors. So for me, that comes from the southern part of India, the state of Kerala, which is sort of like the Hawaii of India. It's a long strip of land at the on the west coast near the tip. And my father was born in Burma, actually, and mother in Kerala. Oh, I never knew. Yeah, and I recently had the good fortune of going to Burma recently to see where he grew up. And I, like Abraham Lincoln, was born in Kentucky and raised in Illinois. Uh, Oh, okay. Like him, became a lawyer, and I'm about the same height as him, so I I push that analogy wherever I can, because it's a, a great story to try to live up to. And I have been on the east coast of the U.S. quite a bit, and in Canada. And uh, let's see, what have you asked? What is my location? Is that right? Yep. So where you're from, where you're local. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm local here in New York. I have been local in Canada, in Montreal and Ottawa. And I have co-founded two organizations that are local in India, one in New Delhi and one in Bangalore. And so I kind of go back and forth between all three countries uh, regularly. Okay. That sounds, again, very global. <laughs> I'm a very global citizen you are. Okay. So tell us more about how you, like you are a human rights lawyer. So how did you go from being a human rights lawyer to being a founder of these tremendously innovative endeavors? Well, I was a regular lawyer doing regular court cases, uh, albeit on Mm -hmm. international human rights issues and domestic human rights issues. And 
but I'd always been thinking about, you know, human rights means uh, negative rights and positive rights. The negative rights are don't torture me, you know, don't infringe on my right to free speech. But the positive rights are sort of economic and social rights, right to be as healthy as you can, you know, the right to have certain social rights. These are called positive rights. And I was always interested in that. And so one day we, it was a great moment in litigation. We had freed a, a man from death row and he, you know, he evaded, you know, the electric chair. And we were sitting around a bunch of lawyers that night in New York. And one of them said something to me that I always remember. He said, you know, it's great that uh, this case was won, but the uh, the return on investment was not very high. It was rather inefficient. It, was, uh, hmm. it took 15 lawyers 15 years to free this one person. And I thought that was one of the most boorish things that one could say, particularly at a moment like that, where, um, you know, we had saved mm -hmm. somebody from death. But, you know, the words resonated with me. And I was really thinking that, you know, that was a lot of effort for one person. And what if my clients could be not one person, but millions or billions of people? Mm. And so I had this bent, this creative bent, and was interested in exploring that side of things. And I got the chance to. And so that was kind of how I made the transition from, I guess, one side of human rights to the other, from court case litigation to uh, sort of advocating for and trying to create and realize the right to health at some scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So then what was it like to do that, I guess, sort of pivot, right? Because you're working for firms, you're, yeah. you're working in a law firm, I'm assuming, yeah. you know, you're, you know, on the per potential partner track or something like that. Yeah. And then you say, okay, I want to do more. I want to do better. How did you, yeah. how did you make that move? So I had been working at a, you know, a nonprofit law firm. And then I went to a private sector law firm that did international law. Mm -hmm. And some of the cases from the nonprofit take forever. So I was still doing them while I was at the private firm. And that was at that time that we won the death penalty case. And then I started thinking, do I want to be a, be a litigator for my life? I didn't enjoy it very much. You know, I thought it was intellectually interesting, mm -hmm. but it was, mm -hmm. it was kind of a pain, at least for me, to do. I, I disliked many parts of it. And I had been um, an entrepreneur at one point. Like right out, uh, right out of school, I started up a tech company. And I'm a creator. Oh, you said a, a what kind of company? A, 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 an internet company, actually. You know, right up. Internet. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, the tech side yeah. of things. Wait, okay, stop. What was but, that? Um, so it actually has still been going until maybe very recently where it might be fading. But it's, it was sort of an early social media company. And oh. uh, we set it up with some college classmates that was based in Miami. And, you know, it, uh -huh. The whole I went through the whole paces, you know, the whole set of paces, angel, VC funding, customers, all that stuff. And uh, so I had that bit of background in me, and I was a creative writer, and I, I thought, let me try and do something sort of social entrepreneurial if I could. But I knew I wanted to kind of shift from litigation. So I was thinking about a few things mm -hmm. at that point. I was thinking about academia. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about uh, a lot of things. I ended up, for family reasons, moving to Montreal, and I applied mm -hmm. to jobs at, my joke is, uh, McDonald's. McSweeney's, which is a literary publisher, McGill, which is a university up there, and McKinsey. And the, the only one that came through was McKinsey, and so I did it. And uh, uh, and I was terrible at it. I mean, I could understand it all, but I wasn't very fast at making PowerPoints and doing Excel. Mm. So I did that for a little bit, and I didn't quite believe in it either, but it was helpful to me to get me to that place. And then from there... I kind of got into this whole global social innovation world that I'm now in. I went from there and I got a, a job at the X Prize Foundation as kind of head of their 
education and international development programs. And this was a sort of uh, high-flying nonprofit that does, what do they call it? Radical innovation for the benefit of humanity. And so I worked mm-hmm. there. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember. Are they, so are they still operating? Yeah, they still are. They're, they're in California. Okay. They're based in California. And then from there, okay. I kind of took the plunge and started my own two ventures. And those are the ones that are still going now that, that I still work with. And, you know, they're funded by philanthropies and governments. And I work for them. And so one is in, global, they're both in global health. One is in malnutrition and one is in uh, medicine for all. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, what would you say you took away from the XPRIZE Foundation space? Because I feel like one of these, I think, started with you competing for one of the prizes, right? Is that, am I right? Or am I um, kind of reaching for that? Yeah, no, I think that was more, well, there's always a lot of competition, but that kind of happened a little later. I, I just kind of joined there oh, okay. as a staffer. They were interested in, they did space, you know, prizes for flying to space. And, and I went mm-hmm. there to try and I was lucky. I got, I went there to try and see if they could take their approach and apply it to social issues. And it mm-hmm. obviously applies. So that there was a lot of thought that went into it. And we kind of figured out how the model worked and uh, helped launch actually the innovation prize approach in the international development community. And right. the, the, That's the what I remember mm-hmm. down was instead of doing like a, a $10 million prize for one person, to build a spaceship, could you do like a, a one dollar prize for ten million people to do something else? You know, for example, or, mm-hmm. or a prize for attainment of sustainable development goals, and you know, these types of, or a prize to like use computers to develop drug candidates for tuberculosis. I mean, you know, th- these types of things are what we were experimenting with. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, which was first? I know, but I'm just indulging my listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Which came first for you in terms of your entrepreneurial endeavors? So the first one was this, you know, in this kind of, I guess, I mean, and sometimes I view all of them as as entrepreneurial. Like, you know, as an undergrad, mm-hmm. I was an activist. And then I, that's kind of entrepreneurial. The, the word entrepreneur means, it doesn't mean, you know, private sector commercial venture. It's a French word meaning, I think, one who undertakes. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, and mm-hmm. so there was that, there was the startup company. Each of the cases were like these, these long shot ventures, you know, where we had to kind of yeah. have an idea and assemble people. But then in terms of formal social entrepreneurship, the first project was the SALT. And so mm-hmm. we basically, I mean, I think the, the whole big thing is, you know, I think all of this is <laughs> depends on social movements and political context and, and all that. That's the most mm-hmm. important thing, you know, innovation mm-hmm. is sort of like a, <laughs> a little, to stop gap paltry thing you know the systems are the important thing but having mm-hmm. said that so we looked at i guess the lens was you know we, we're here on, on this earth and you know i'm probably going to be able to not starve to death you know i've been given a lot you know i was born in america i got educated etc and so then how can we spend our time on earth that's most meaningful and interesting and it maybe it, it is that it's the thing if you land everybody up, up on in earth who is my age and rank them by in terms of opportunities, education, nutrition, calories, health, housing, would probably be in the top 0.1% or top 1% or something. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, mm-hmm. what can I kind of do with this life? And maybe it's to try to ha- make things better at, at large scale was the kind of goal at age 18 or 19. And uh, mm-hmm. I got a, a chance to be able to do that. And so in that vein, it was like the lens was, is there a problem that's serious that affects more than a billion people? that could be subject to transformative change through a sort of open innovation type approach. And then the SALT 
project really resonated for me. It was like, it seemed like it was really high potential. And so I kind of got involved with the people who were already working on it and started to help them mm -hmm. out and things grew from there. And so mm -hmm. that was the first project. There's specifics of what it is, but that was how it started. Yeah. So let me dive a little deeper and yeah. ask why the where? So why the where, particularly where you started yeah. with the salt? And yeah. to some extent, um, why the where in terms of all of your problem-solving focus, like from a geographical perspective? Yeah, I guess. I mean, from in the litigation, it was really local a lot of times. It was New York City courts. I was living in New York. My license was in New York. The cases were there. Mm -hmm. There were some global mm -hmm. cases, you know, um, uh, although those often were in, in court in New York where I was licensed. Mm -hmm. Then I started thinking about the global problems, I guess, because I have kind of you know, I'm not that far removed from the global South. I consider myself part of it in a way, you know, yeah. and mm -hmm. I, I, I think growing up, I used to go back to India and I had a, a sense that there was a larger world outside of, you know, what you see in, in small town America. And I think it was, it made quite a big impression on me. I was a sensitive kid and, you know, I would like see people, you know, walking around on their hands with their limbs deformed. And it, it was just kind of stunning and made a big impression on me. And I, real, mm. I kind of realized that, you know, there's a sort of larger sort of issue of global justice, you know, that underlies everything. Mm -hmm. And so that where kind of made me think globally for a long time. And then for these specific projects, the people I hooked up with were based in Canada. The first implementation that we did was in India, kind of rolling out double fortified salt there. And that was because I had some contacts there. The, the problem was very severe and widespread there. We got some government support from state governments to work on this and so this project if you look at the there's a slide in the slide deck that shows like speaking of global like the players in the project it looks like an octopus it's got like mm. ottawa montreal seattle north india jaipur you know western india mumbai and you know the stuff is made in a lab in toronto and then made in a factory in Jaipur and then goes up to Uttar Pradesh and North India and went out to 10,000 village stores across the state. And so it was just a, um, a really mm. global kind of project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So you basically founded this and it's yeah. a, it becomes, I mean, it's a not-for-profit, but what exactly is the business model in terms of like, how do you sustain it? How is yeah. it being sustained? I know that you mentioned public-private partnerships, yeah. but in terms of distribution and it's a not-for-profit that's based in India or yeah. US-based? So it's a kind of consortium. One key element is a key player is a nonprofit in India, but then it's a consortium of groups. It's, you know, the University of Toronto, which has a lab. It's the Gate okay. Foundation, which is a funder. It's the Tata Trust in Mumbai, which is a funder. It's the government of Canada, which is a funder. It's three state governments in India, which are funders. So the business model is basically, at this point, it's kind of open source. I think the project must have in total 25 million plus in funding. And that pays for tech transfer salaries and, and actual salt additives and things. And so basically, we take a, a little, what's the phrase? I think it's a poem by Blake, or the world in the grain of sand or something like that. So this is like the world in the grain of salt. So there's like mm -hmm. a little... Thing that looks like a grain of salt it's white on the outside it's the size of a grain of salt but inside is some iron that's what it is we take that and mm. the salt so that part the, the ip is provided for free and then the mm -hmm. people who make that pellet get paid 
and the people who sell the salt get paid, and the purchaser of the salt is the government and consumers, and that's how it all kind of works mm. economically. Okay. And okay. And it's not that expensive. It's you know it costs like a few cents per person per year to add the iron to the salt. So right now the big wow. the the big purchaser has been the state governments, which decided to pay for all this iron. And actually, not even pay for the iron, but even pay for some of the salt itself, so it goes out super cheap to the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's there's that subsidy that's involved yeah, in yeah. investing in. Yeah, that's right. And and so kind of on the um, evaluation and like the the science study side yeah. of it, do you have like some kind of longitudinal study that's looking at communities that are using yeah. this versus communities that are not, so that you have like clear indicators yeah. of. The, the impact? Yeah, great question. You know, usually in nutrition, you don't have this. You only have it in like pharma where there's a lot of money. But this, this right. is an exception. So there were mm-hmm. what's called efficacy studies, which are r- small randomized controlled trials uh, mm-hmm. showing that this worked in a controlled setting. And there's been two or three. And then even more rarely, there's what's called an effectiveness study, which is not a randomized mm-hmm. controlled trial, but a, just a controlled trial. It means it's the things out in the wild. And uh, mm-hmm. so there's a district mm-hmm. with 2 million people that has the salt widespread and the adjoining district with a couple million people does not. And we kind of sampled okay. at a population level scale over time. And it came out, the paper is published in one of the Oxford University journals. And it showed that the course of about a year that iron deficiency dropped roughly 20% at a population scale. So this is a kind of huge advance. I mean, this is a problem that's been intractable really and yeah. we made a headway on it in, in one of the more difficult operating environments in the world and we did it at scale i mean so this salt has gone out to tens of millions of people and has reduced iron deficiency at scale wow so that's was, that's amazing yeah. i was just listening to a program that was basically talking about how widespread anemia is and so yeah. at least nearly 50 percent of adult women mm-hmm. have iron deficiency anemia um, during childbearing ages. Children, it's closer to 10%. And I think maybe, I'm not sure if that's global or if it's in Ghana, but it's a serious challenge. And so in terms of solving that problem, what is the long-term effect of, you know, we know that anemia is not a great thing, but just really from a nutritional standpoint, having fortified iron does what for people? Yeah. So it's a key, key nutrient. It's what um, Mm -hmm. lets oxygen bind to your red blood cells. And, right. and so it's it's essential on so many things. So if you don't have enough iron, it mostly affects, disproportionately affects women and children. Um, mm-hmm. Your energy levels are lower. Your mm-hmm. cognitive capacity is lower. Uh, mm-hmm. Maternal mortality rises. Uh, you may not die, but you're living, uh, unless, it's, of course, uh, of course, what I just said, maternal mortality. But otherwise, it it kind of just uh, diminishes your potential in serious, comfortable yeah. ways. And so yeah. about 2 billion people in the world, this is why we picked the problem. I, I, actually, I should say this. So mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. 2 billion people in the world don't have enough iron. 2 billion, yeah. the most widespread form of uh, malnutrition in the world, one of the most widespread problems in the world. And then mm-hmm. iodized salt reaches 5 billion people every day. So we thought, oh, if we mm-hmm. add some iron to the salt, we might be able to address this problem. Sure, sure. So it's already, right. So already a processed good that you're just refining with a new or future fortifying. Wow, that's awesome. So right now you're, are you only in India? Are you, do you have plans to um, push it out? Like, 
twofold question on that marketing side of things. Does the community really know that this is a product that they should be going for? And how are you spreading that word in terms of marketing and being kind of the on the ground marketing? And how are you letting other countries know that this is something that's available? Yeah, so great question. So in this recent pilot, there were, you know, signs in the village stores saying this is double fortified salt. Uh, there were uh, there's women health workers who thousands of them were trained in what this is, and they went out to mm. their respective villages and, and talked about it. There were government signs. The chief minister of the state was on a poster. The prime minister of India was on a poster saying double fortified salt. Uh, he gave a speech saying, you know, this is important. So we pushed it out as best we could, but although we could always do more. We're starting mm. to look at commercial channels too, you know, um, mm. like companies mm -hmm. could make it and sell it. And the first... In Tanzania, we have a small presence now. There's a quadruple fortified salt, and we are doing clinical trials in Tanzania and India now to, you know, to help uh, move that forward. And I think okay. the ideal scenario is if this really, if it really proves out, and it's a big if, it's, and so far the data has been good, then we could maybe kind of roll it out to a billion people across seven countries and, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the target countries would be a few in South Asia, Ethiopia, Nigeria, uh, and Indonesia, all of which have sort of kind of, uh, we have existing ties to, or in Nigeria, there's just three salt manufacturers really that cover the whole country. And so yeah. if we get to them, we can yeah. reach a lot of people quickly. Mm -hmm. And these are places where the, the iron deficiency is basically principally in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa is where it's most prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so when you said quadruple fortified, what is quadruple fortified? Yeah, so the regular salt is commonly iodized, then the double fortified mm -hmm. is with iron, and then the quadruple mm -hmm. is with uh, vitamin B12 and folic acid. Ah, okay. And those both help with anemia as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, folic acid is prevents neural tube birth defects. Right. And these right, are right, mandatory, right, right. like awesome. in many countries around the world. Like if you if you have yeah. the grocery store, the salt the the wheat flour is fortified with iron. And, and so this is just yeah. using some, a lot of people don't eat wheat flour though, but everybody eats salt. So that was the, the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is so awesome. I've told you this before. I'm like, this is just like, haha, light bulb. Yeah. So um, let's move on into, um, you've spoken about, you know, working in these countries and then rolling something out. Let me ask you my local speak question. So yeah. tell us something that you hear and that is a, a really important part of your global speak vernacular. All right. Well, there's some great phrases that I hear. English is spoken in many countries now. We're speaking in English. Mm -hmm. Right. And in every place, English is a bit different. So I've gotten mm -hmm. to learn some good Indian business English. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> so one is in an email, you write PFA, and that means please find attached. Oh, okay. Okay, and PFA, then, that's yeah, a good yeah. one. <laughs> and then another one, and I'm starting to use these phrases now, I'll say I will revert, you know, and so if I, and so if I will get back, yes. I'll revert. Yeah, and, that's true. Like, yeah. I didn't start saying that until yeah. I, or writing that until yeah. I moved here. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, so. and the best one, I think, is please do the needful. And then in Kerala, there's a kind of philosophical phrase. We say, like, we are like that only. You know, it's just like, say la vie. <laughs> That's how things are. <laughs> oh, okay. Our, we are nature. like that only. Yeah. Oh, this is our nature. We are like that only. In Canada, let's see. I can think of a good Canadian phrase. 
and a good New York phrase. What would be a good New York phrase? <laughs> Just the antagonistic New York. You want a piece of me? Yeah, that's yeah. that's when you hear. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So speaking of Canada, do you, or and especially Montreal, how is your French? Oh, it was pretty poor. So okay. <laughs> I struggled, especially there were some work projects in French and uh, mostly ended up doing English projects. <laughs> yeah, because I hope it okay. was abysmal. That, uh, yeah. Luckily, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Montreal is a city that you can definitely get around with yeah. just English. I can appreciate, you know, Canadian French a little bit. Like, I'm enamored by Francophone French just because they speak the way Africans speak in terms of the speed of talk and things like that. So that makes French a lot easier. But yeah, I get it. Yeah. In terms of like understanding those places. So speaking of being in another, you know, being in all these places, we're in this global pandemic now. And you are in global pharma. Yeah. So tell us more about open source pharma foundation because we are in a huge all the news is, you know, this today the Chinese vaccine is now part of the COVAX um, piece, you know, for COVID, COVID-19. So where, first of all, tell us about the origins of getting to pharma and then how that now is so relevant and so important in the context of our global pandemic. Yeah. The origins meaning like how I started in it or how the project started or. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was at XPRIZE, I encountered a project in the government of India called Open Source Drug Discovery. I was like, wow, this is mm, super interesting. Mm -hmm. They focused on tuberculosis where big pharma didn't have enough mm -hmm. financial incentive to focus. And they were using mm -hmm. computers to kind of crowdsource potential cures and then taking that to government labs for testing and taking forward. And it was all just in an area of market failure where conventional industry really couldn't focus. And it was, of course, hugely important. It's like TB is like an you know, iron deficiency. It's like Basically, two million people yeah. have the, the bacteria in their body every year. I mean, mm -hmm. TB is just terrible. It's like a COVID every year. I mean, the TB, mm -hmm. the TB death toll mm -hmm. is about the same in 2020 as COVID was in 2020. And it happens every year. And nobody pays mm -hmm. attention to it. Um, mm -hmm. As mm -hmm. one of the professors in India said, like, with COVID, it affected people who, I mean, this is uh, some months ago now, so it's no longer appropriate or apt, but he said COVID affects people who eat in restaurants and go on airplanes, and that's why it became a big deal, whereas TB mm -hmm. um, But so we got interested in that. The prime minister changed in the government of India, and the program didn't continue, but I thought it was a good idea and managed to like help it revive and take root in a nonprofit outside of the government context and get some funding for it. And we continued to work on TB, and they phrase it very nicely. They said the closed door market driven approach to drug and medicine de development just doesn't deliver for diseases of the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact remains that most diseases have no approved cure at all. 95% of them actually don't uh, because there's not mm -hmm. a lot of financial return in diseases that are affecting the poor mm -hmm. or very few mm -hmm. people, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that's how it got started. And, and we've we've kind of latched on to like two or three ways of doing it. One is, you know, AI and machine learning for drug discovery because it doesn't cost very much. And so we can at least do that mm. stuff relatively cheaply. And the other big idea... So wait, tell us more about how that... So AI yeah. machine learning. So what does that mean? So I'll give you an example. We have a... We had for a while a village lab in India and people would sit in, in this like open air sort of hut 
uh, with the thatched roof wall, and uh, they'd be on their laptops. We were able to connect them to the supercomputer system of the government of India, and they looked at a model of the tuberculosis bacteria online. And then they would take a model mm. of a drug and try and dock them together and see where they fit properly and to see whether mm. the could potentially be a drug for TB. Got it. So that's kind of how it works. It. Rather than doing all the experiments in a lab with Petri dishes, you can kind of simulate them mm -hmm. on the computer mm -hmm. and do it mm -hmm. a little faster. Mm -hmm. okay. And you can also scan millions of things really fast. Right. <laughs> so, right. so it's kind of early stage drug discovery on the computer, basically. Yeah. So that's one thing. And we do a lot of education and training. And the second thing that we really latched on to was, was this, this big hole that we saw. Like, you can take a drug or a vaccine, now it turns out, that's off patent and that belongs to the whole world. And mm -hmm. sometimes it might work against a different disease. And, mm -hmm. and because mm -hmm. it's already approved, you can go really fast. And you can skip that 10 years of funding and development and go right to very late stage clinical trials to see if it works against a new disease. And so this mm. is like a thousand X cheaper than the big pharma method. And it's like, you know, maybe five or 10 X faster. Yeah. And nobody has really an incentive to do it. So it's kind of neglected, mm -hmm. but so we gave it a try and, and it's been working. So we, we have a drug for tuberculosis that just finished phase two B clinical trials and we got in, you know, usually it might take a hundred million dollars to get to that stage, and we did it for like less than fifty thousand dollars. You know, and, wow, uh, and wow, yeah, wow, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's so. How are you telling that story, though? So we're telling it as much as we can. So, um, okay. I mean, we need to tell it more. Yeah. The, the press we've had has been, you know, Fast Company. I gave a Google talk. The mm -hmm. Economist mentioned us. BBC mentioned us. Mm -hmm. Stayed up till 5 a.m. last night writing an op-ed for The Guardian in London. Mm -hmm. But we need more attention because it's a huge success story. And I think I think the world should be showering us with money. And I think individuals should shower us with money because we're making, you know. I think so, too. Yeah, I think so, too. So, yeah, yeah. so tell us, so where are you financially with that? So you, you talked about kind of the process. But, yeah. you know, the, for the SALT project, you had yeah. a consortium of yeah. public-private partners that helped fund this one. Yeah. How was this one, you know, the 50000 where did that come from? How are you funding this? And what yeah. is the revenue model on an open source yeah. pharma well, basis? First of all, I do want to make a pitch. I think we're starting to get into crowdfunding. So I think we need to do that. Uh, and we've, we're okay. developing that a bit. Mm -hmm. And very interestingly, the polio vaccine, which is the big vaccine before COVID in America, was mm -hmm. crowdfunded. Mm -hmm. If you've ever mm -hmm. heard of it. was it? Oh yeah, by big philanthropy, right? Uh, by school children. So um, really, yeah. So it's a great story. Oh. So yeah, uh, it's called the March of Dimes. They sent in dimes. You oh, know, that's, that's where they the originated. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that was the original. They made it basically an open IP vaccine. And so we're working on open IP COVID vaccines. This is our big project now, Florence. The people's vaccine yeah. for the whole world. And ours mm -hmm. are going to be not only open IP, where everybody can make them who's qualified, but they're also going to be technically and substantively better because they will protect against many diseases at once. So if you have a mm. variant of COVID, you might not have to go get another different vaccine. This will be ready on day one of a pandemic because it's broad spectrum. We're making like uh, and so we don't have to wait for a year or two or three to get a new vaccine for each pandemic. We can be ready on day one or even before. So this is our big mm -hmm. project. It's called Vaccinuum. And we have... Vaccinuum. Yep. It's like, as in... Okay. And it's sort of broad spectrum, open IP vaccines for the whole world to stop this pandemic and future pandemics before they even start. And we have mm. like 
global scientific leadership on this. So it's super, the science is very, very strong. And so far, to answer your question, we've been philanthropically funded so far. So it's, and government as well. So it's been very blue chip. Tata, Soros, Rockefeller, welcome are the philanthropies and government of India is the government. So, but I think mm -hmm. we probably need to broaden it because this is a, everybody in the whole world is thinking about, for example, COVID vaccines and this, the open source yeah. is very conducive to people's participation, I think. So we have, yeah. we're starting a phase three clinical trial in Brazil. And okay. if people want to, if we want to actually raise funds to expand the robustness of that trial. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is basically doing the off patent vaccines. Some of them, uh, like the measles or tuberculosis vaccines, for example, or flu, which is a lot of vaccines that have potential against COVID. And they're widely mm -hmm. available right now, whereas right now only a small percentage of the people in the world can, can get access to a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or whatever. Uh, but this is something that people exactly. do today. And in fact, I did it uh, while I was waiting, you know, before the COVID vaccines were out, I went and got myself an MMR vaccine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just to think about immunity. Yeah. Wow. This is amazing stuff. I mean, if you, so how do you attract the um, open source participants? When I think of open source, I definitely think about like the days of early tech and yeah. What was it? Wasn't Mozilla like an open yeah, source for to start? Yeah. yeah. So so all of that. So how and you know that was like not to be you know condescending, but that was like Revenge of the Nerds. So it was yeah. just like a very nerdy thing where people just kind of like hopped on and did it. How are you now attracting the the talent that is actually and what is the profile of of your I guess what would you call them yeah. programmers? Uh, Community members, open source pharma community members. Uh, so we're on okay. six continents now, everyone but Antarctica. And mm -hmm. it, okay. we have an artist in residence. So we have some artists and filmmakers that are with us. There's a, a bunch of scientists and science students. And mm -hmm. the students, like we teach classes on Zoom every day. Like the free version of Zoom hmm. is 40 minutes. So the class is 38 minutes long. Okay. And you get to learn like <laughs> computation for drug discovery and stuff like that. Um, wow, we have a fun. big social media presence. I mean, a lot of people on WhatsApp, like thousands mm -hmm. and like hundreds mm -hmm. of WhatsApp groups and Facebook and stuff too. We also have a kind of cadre of sort of elite scientists. So we're talking like mm -hmm. top 10 scientists in the world kind of people uh, who mm -hmm. like our humanitarian mission and see that we're filling a gap, you know, because usually the, mm -hmm. that prowess only goes to, you know, not to the, the greatest health need, you know, and we give them yeah. the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So who are, you know, we we talk about celebrity, but my, I've always felt like the sciences get, you know, short shrift on that. So when yeah. you say the top 10 scientists in the world, who are they? Who would you say so are we those have people? Some people who have been advising us, let's see. So one is Dr. Robert Gallo, his name is. Gallo? Yeah, G-A-L-L-O. Mm -hmm. And he is a, a great individual. He's the co-discoverer of HIV. Uh, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he should have won the Nobel Prize. The co-winner of the Nobel Prize said that he should have won. Uh, he's won mm. two Lasker Prizes, the only scientist to do that, which is like the American Nobel. And he was the, in science and in academia, I guess one way that people get ranked, so to speak, is by how often you publish and how often those publications are cited by other people or referenced by other people, right? Like mm -hmm. you, just, you publish something in a journal and do other people, you know, say, hey, you know, and cite it in their work. And so he was the number one most cited scientist in the world. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So, so he's okay. like, yeah. so he's up there. 
Then we have a person who was the former head of R&D for two big pharmas, head of the global health program at the Gates Foundation. He's an advisor. We have the ex-head of the National Lab System of India and somebody who's a pharma innovation specialist who's known in the field, who is like ranked top 25 most influential people in pharma in the world. You know, this kind of uh, mm-hmm. caliber of people. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we're collaborating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been interacting quite a bit with the scientists uh, at Columbia, who was named Time Magazine Person of the Year at one point. And uh, so we're kind of working with the scientific elite and also with mm-hmm. students and artists, you know. Mm, okay. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So where where do you see this open source farmer project in five years? My vision is that we would like to have a sort of infrastructure where if somebody somewhere wanted to help out, a student or a volunteer, a retired scientist or a citizen even, they could kind of participate in discovering a medicine or even mm. a kid, a sort of mm-hmm. TikTok for drug discovery. So we'd really like mm. to get the community really going because there's a saying in software, with enough eyes, all bugs are shallow. So I think mm-hmm. the room is able to participate mm-hmm. even part-time. And if we put our collective brain power on this stuff, we might be mm-hmm. able to solve these, you know, these unsolved issues. And and these unsolved, unsolved issues are not a sliver, they're actually like the majority. So we need a new model. Yeah. And we also want to have delivered our first uh, actual medicines and vaccines. And so mm-hmm. we're getting mm-hmm. close to that right now with tuberculosis. And we have a potential, I mean, I'm thinking actually of like six months from now, I, or I'd like to have like a widespread open IP vaccine for the whole world, you know, that could address COVID or future pandemics. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so like this Brazil trial shows that the measles vaccine or the flu vaccine can fight COVID. And these are vaccines that are available the whole world over and are very cheap. You know, that's a really right. big deal. And uh, right. and so, and then in terms of a model, we, we will show that rather than needing $2 billion to make a new new medicine, or we could do it for a small fraction of that and kind of change the landscape of global health. So I guess sure. that's our answer. Yeah. So hmm, how does pharma taking you? So we actually have good relations with pharma. Mm-hmm. The We work on diseases that are not of interest to them so much. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe of humanitarian mm-hmm. interest, but not until of- now. Yeah, that's right. Now we're doing COVID. So that's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, until now. So that's, that's, right. a, that's something like, do you, we, do you have lobbyists? Like what's your, how do you arm yourself from a business perspective? And, and again, a sustainability perspective yeah. against capitalism, because, you know, open source is the whole nature of it is to socialize. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I mean, we need, Florence, you're going to have to rally a, us uh, support. <laughs> so I'm happy to. I'm we, happy to. We need to. all the help we can get. We're fighting the good fight and we're winning. Mm-hmm. There's a more sophisticated, you know, nuanced version of the facts, which I wasn't aware of before, but like, so open source and propri- in the software industry, they coexist happily. You know, Microsoft funds yeah. Linux. Uh, yeah. 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 They yeah, operate yeah. in different places. They're synergistic. And so, you know, we mm-hmm. might see a situation where it's open source for neglected disease and sort of proprietary for lucrative disease, for example, mm-hmm. or else or else this stuff is pre-competitive. And so even Big Pharma wants pre-competitive stuff. And they also want to know, mm-hmm. they come to us because they want to learn, they know that the world is moving towards open ways of research and knowledge, and they want to learn that stuff too. And they do it themselves mm-hmm. quite a bit. And I think one of our areas of focus is really this repurposing of old off-patent stuff, the medicines and vaccines. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. doesn't quite fit their business model. 
So, so far, you know, they come to our conferences, we have them as advisors. And so I think ultimately in software, they thought they were going to be mortal enemies, but they actually ended up coexisting quite well. So it might end up being some something like that. That's true. That's a good model. And it does, it does work. But I am fearful of the end game because pharma is huge, which we've seen with this whole COVID situation. It's huge. It's yeah. a huge lobby, Yeah. you know, to the extent of, you know, looking for sovereign guarantees and, you know, government yeah. signing up. It's real. It's very serious stuff. Yeah. And so let me ask you this as well. Does plant science have a role in this yes, open pharma? We do journey? actually, because of our, mm-hmm. it was really a, a local thing. I mean, because of our, our presence mm-hmm. in India, uh, mm-hmm. nearby us, physically is one of the larger plant science outfits in India. It's a traditional medicine research institution. So okay. uh, in India, the, there's several tr- systems of plant-based traditional medicine in India that are thousands of years old. One of them is called Ayurveda. Yep. And so this, this is like a research institute that does Ayurveda. You know, they like mm-hmm. have, it's a serious place. They have like an Ayurvedic hospital and, you know. Acres. What's the name of the place? It's called Transdisciplinary University. Okay. And then the affiliated okay. hospital is IAIM, the Institute for Ayurvedic and Integrative Medicine. And then okay. in Kerala, where we grew up, or, or, or my family's from, sorry, when did I say that? Uh, my aunt, a distant aunt of mine, actually works at a place called AVS, Ayurveda Shala, which is kind of like the Johnson and Johnson of Ayurveda. They have like 500 mm. products and they're 100 years old and hospitals and stuff. And so this is stuff is just kind of around and we thought this is an alternative way of doing health and we were trying to bridge these paradigms. So we thought like we actually have a project of AI and Ayurveda. Nice. Uh, nice. It actually fits really well because like Ayurveda is too complicated for the regular stuff to study. You know, there's lots of plants and lots of molecules and but sure. AI can handle all that complexity. So we've been trying to find wow. explore it. Nice. Yeah. So that is super exciting. Yeah. Super exciting. So with that in mind, um, let me ask you about a mindset hack, you know, yeah. like the whole idea of like even being able to marry Ayurveda with the technology. What would you say is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? And if you're talking personal mindset, I guess I've been just doing it lately because this <laughs> this job is very stressful. So I can imagine. <laughs> I, I, uh, I've just started to do like my first cousin is a, a yoga teacher. And then she talked okay. something interesting about yoga that I hadn't known, mm-hmm. which is that there are, it's called the eight limbs of yoga, I think, or the eight yeah. practices. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I kind of only really conceptualized yoga as that hatha yoga and the asana practice and all that. But yeah. she told me yeah. about the, the eight parts, you know, the moral ethical parts and then the chanting sure. and the breathing and the asana and the meditation yeah. and three kinds of meditation and all yeah. that. And then it kind of sunk in because we were talking to this scientist who invented the AIDS cocktail you know, which is the main treatment for AIDS now, which was like many medicines at once. So I like mm-hmm. put the two ideas together. I was like, oh, okay, I never know which one to do. So let me try all of them. I'll try it. So I'll do <laughs> all eight. And so I started doing that in the mornings. And, you know, it kind of keeps me in a better, more chipper mood, you know, dealing Good. with all the kind of conflict that I have to deal with every day. You know? so, I can imagine. Yeah. 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 Kind of grounding and, yeah. and uplifting at the same time. And to do it in the morning and like get it done because otherwise you get caught up in the day and it never happens. So, so that's been sure, cool sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so is your, is your practice about like an hour, less yeah. than an hour? I'd say ideally like 50 minutes or so often ends up being okay. shorter, but it's basically okay. a little of 
what is it? I mean, and I don't, I do it. I've actually been doing something the majority of the days, I'd say, not the whole shebang, but um, by something I mean a little chanting, a little pranayama, a mm -hmm. little asana practice, a little meditation, and then I add in mm -hmm. like a couple minutes of interval training and, and weights. But each of them were like, obviously, like <laughs> five minutes of each or something, and then I'm done. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. well, you know, the thing we're learning is that it's just the consistency of doing it is more yeah. important than like doing these hours and hours yeah. of activity, because I think the consciousness that inspires is is what is doing the work on your, your energy system. So mm -hmm. nice work, yeah. however, however long you take and <laughs> yeah, making yeah, it consistent. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend once that she introduced me to the the five Tibetans, which is, you know, these Tibetan monks, this is like the five exercises that they do every day. And it's part of their yoga, I believe. It's part of, you know, the whole process of adhering to the eight limbs. And then when I read the autobiography of a yogi, yeah. and he would often say, oh, and then, the, you know, the, um, the master gave someone their yoga, I kind of was like, oh, is that what they were giving? I'm not sure. But let me just, you know, see if this is the yoga for me. And so I particularly last year when the pandemic hit and, you know, I have a lower back issues. I said, okay, well, let me do these because there are certain exercises that every practice pretty much says you should do these exercises all the time. So it's five different exercises and it's initially difficult to, because one of them is spinning. So <laughs> it's initially hard to get into. So, you know, you start with seven and then you increment up, but I'd say within two weeks, I was up to the 21. That is the recommended and I do that every day. So it takes about 10 minutes every day. And I can say that it has gotten to um, strengthen those weaknesses that I had physically. Um, I have a meditation practice aside from that, but it's like just to the point, like it's 10 minutes of consistent, you know, strengthening or, you know, want to call it physical therapy, but also a little bit of meditative movement that makes a real impact. So I appreciate you sharing that and uh, I make that connection with my own self. So aside from, you know, the yoga, tell us more about, you know, when you're not changing the world so tremendously, what's your indulgence? Like, are you a reader? Are you a watcher? Are you a listener? What, what occupies your leisure time? I follow the Los Angeles Lakers and the Chicago Bulls too closely. Uh, <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, so, were you missing this dearly during the whole pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and what else? You know, family and friends. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You, you have a son that's a basketball player yeah, as well. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So yeah. We, we, okay. we have that in common. Uh -huh. Yeah. Just family and friends. Uh -huh. I, in terms of hobbies, a little basketball, not much. And, uh -huh. um, uh, creative writing is something I like, and and it actually you can kind of do it. You can kind of strive for something that's aesthetically perfect, you know, and uh, and that's kind of nice, you know. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's true, yeah. and it's just the flow of yeah. all of that. Um, but are you a big reader? Do you what what kind of reading aside yeah. from the science, and even in the science, what are you yeah. reading lately? I mean, on the science, I read papers saying whether certain vaccines from other diseases work against COVID. <laughs> you know? okay. And then uh, I'm reading less than I like to. I've been reading too much just like mm -hmm. you know, periodicals and stuff online. Yeah. But in terms of books, you know, I love narrative nonfiction. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of deep into that and novels, you know, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what's one of your favorites in, that you've read? Maybe not recently, but a book yeah. that you think our, our listeners would be interested in. 
I've read a little bit. And want to, next on my list is to read some of the the Stoics. Uh, mm. Aurelius, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I understand he was an emperor of Rome, and you know he had a lot of practical responsibilities. But he like this was his philosophy. Um, so I think mm -hmm. I'm in the fray right now. So I, I need that. Mm -hmm. And then let's see, what have I read recently that I liked? I mean, some of my all-time favorites are. Didion, Hemingway, Sherwood Anderson, Bruce Chatwin, and Tom Wolfe, you know? Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, nice, nice. So we'll put some links to that in our show notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have really rich show notes today, folks, so be sure to check them out. So, Jay Kumar, I have loved having this conversation with you. I always enjoy our conversations, so we always kind of go into yeah. these like waves and rabbit holes sometimes, but it's always wonderful. Yeah. And I don't want to encroach on your precious time and rest from you know doing, getting your weekend started. So do you have any last words for our listeners? Go local and, and follow Florence. She'll take you to the promise. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's a good one. That's yeah. a good one. But um, I also want to ask you to share any information. Do you have any information right now about your crowdfunding? Has it started? Are you in the midst of it? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you can always go to our site and there's a there's a donate button on it. Okay. Uh, that's Wonderful. The elementary form of crowdfunding. If you just Google open source pharma, you can find us. We're the sure, open source sure. pharma foundation. And, yeah. and that will be in the yeah. show notes, folks. So we'll yeah. have that available. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we'll have great links to all of J.K. Mar's work. And um, we'll be watching this space pretty intently because this is big news, you know, just kind of, and I'd love to like have you back at some point and talk a little bit more about public health in general with uh, a few others, because just looking at the regional, regional solutions and, and solutions for the South versus solutions for the North, you know, I loved how you, you made the distinction that, you know, COVID is similar to other Pen, I mean, we have potential pandemics all the time, but they're not yeah. necessarily impacting the North. And so, yeah. you know, it's incumbent upon us to really recognize what's important for humanity. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the midst of all this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So thank you so okay. much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay. All right. All right, Take listeners. Have a great okay. Yeah, thank you. You too. You too. Right. Okay. So, listeners, this has been another episode of Global Citizens. We have a new episode every Tuesday at www.globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, that's Apple, Google, Amazon, Audible, actually. Um, you can find us. And so please do listen, subscribe, share, comment, um, reach out, make suggestions for different um, local citizens that you'd like to hear from. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>